0: welcome to the very first episode of our podcast series, Voices and Queries, the V&Q Books podcast. I'm Katie Darwisher. I'm the publisher at V&Q Books. We've made it our task to bring you remarkable writing from Germany, mainly translated from German, but also from other languages spoken here. And here, by the way, is Berlin in my case, where I'm speaking via Zoom with Selim Erdogan and Aicha Tukulu. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Where are you two? I'm in London.
1: I'm in Cologne and on the internet.
0: (laughs) Yes. So you've heard their two voices. That was Aicha first and Salem second. Let me introduce you to them. Uh, Salem was born in Germany and has been publishing his prose since 1995. He's won plenty of prizes for it. And he's also taught creative writing at schools and at the University of Michigan. Salem, you also teach yoga, right?
1: Yeah. That is right. That is something uh, I knew very early on that I wanted to become a writer, but uh, yoga came into my life uh, much later, but to such an extent that I just wanted to be a teacher as well.
0: Exciting. Aicha is a writer and a literary translator born in the UK, and she's also part of the Shadow Heroes team. Uh, taking translators into into British schools. That sounds so cool. Aicha, can you tell us a little bit about
2: it? Um, Yeah, it's an organisation set up by Gitanjali Patel, who's a translator from Spanish and Portuguese. Um, And it basically is a collective at the moment of translators who do workshops in schools, usually secondary schools, mostly in London at the moment. And the aim is to teach like creativity and critical thinking through translation and also use the languages that are already in those classrooms because those classrooms usually have a lot more than just English speakers. You know, there are lots of Turkish speakers, there are Polish speakers, there are Punjabi speakers. Um, and it's really cool and we're going to take over the world. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that.
0: So Aicha and I co-translated Selim's book, The Blacksmith's Daughter, which was a huge joy for both of us, and, and the plan for today is to talk a bit about the book and how we worked on it, why you should read it, why it should win all the prizes in the whole history of the universe, all that kind of thing. So I'm just going to start the bowl rolling by asking you, Selim, how would you sum up the book and when did, what, no, <laughs> how would you sum up the book and why did you write it? way back in 2004 or was it even earlier than that
1: I think I started writing in 2003 Um, how would I sum it up Uh, it takes place in a small town in Turkey Anatolia Turkey in the 40s 50s and 60s late 60s early I, I, I don't really remember. Uh, 60s, let's just say 60s. Uh, and it's the story of a girl growing up in that time at that place. And um, when I started writing, I didn't want to touch that kind of themes uh, because with a Turkish background, everybody was expecting me to write a book which uh, revolves around this background. So I decided I will not do that. And that was like 10 years later after I started writing, it was like, okay, this is part of my inner world. This is part of what, uh, these are the stories I've been told when I was a child and they are very vivid to me. How can I, get all those stories and these feelings and this atmosphere into a novel. So that's how I decided decided to write the novel and it ends where the migration begins. It was like, okay, I'm I'm writing a Turkish book, but it's not about migration because the book ends when migration starts.
0: Um, I'm so glad you did. Thank you. Es
1: ist gült's letztes Jahr. Dann wird die Volksschule beendet sein. Doch nicht mal an einem entlegenen Ufer ihres Verstandes taucht die Frage auf. Und danach? Was sie weiß ist, dass sie Passfotos braucht für ihr Abschlusszeugnis. Also geht sie mittags zu ihrem Vater in den Laden. Sie würde ihm ja die Waden kratzen, aber sie weiß, dass der Fotograf viel mehr kostet. Außerdem hat ihr Vater heute viel zu tun. Sie stellt sich in die Tür. Kurz dreht der Vater ihr den Kopf zu. Mm. So, I read it for the first time today. And I was moved. Which is a nice feeling. And then I, I was like, okay, this sounds terrible. I have to rehearse over and over again. So, that's where I'm at now. It's Gül's final year. Then she'll be done with primary school. But not even on some far-flung shore of her mind does she entertain the question, and then what? What she does know is that she needs official photos for her leaving certificate. So she goes to her father at the forge one afternoon. She'd be happy to scratch his calves for him, but she knows that photographs cost a lot more. Plus, her father has lots to do today. She stands quietly in the doorway. Her father turns to her briefly. What do you want? We'll be getting our leaving certificate soon, Gül says. So we need photos. Can I have some money to get photos? Yes, her father says. Just a tick. A minute later, her father is absorbed in his work again. Gu does doesn't butch. She waits five minutes, six, seven, ten, a quarter of an hour. He doesn't want to give me the money, she thinks. Quietly, she turns around and goes, not knowing where she's off to. Soon, she's on the small town's main street. Where will she get the money now? Maybe she could ask Melike to borrow it from Cezanne. But how would she pay it back? She can't ask Auntie Hülya or her grandmother. Now, she won't get a leaving certificate because she doesn't have photos. She has cheap plastic shoes on her feet, plastic shoes and jail socks. She doesn't have a cardigan, like a lot of the other girls, and she can't even get money for photos. Gül is gulping back her tears when she hears swift footsteps behind her. Stop! Gül turns around. Her father is standing in front of her, breathing hard. You're an ass, he scolds. You need a proper hiding once in a while, then perhaps you'd learn some sense. Good God, Melike would have had the money ten times over in the time you were, you've were you been waiting. You've got to learn to open your mouth. But I did, he mumbles. Her father is incensed, his breathing not slowing. People turn to see where the loud voice is coming from, then look away discreetly. Of course you can have the money, you knit. You've just got to open your mouth, understand? Otherwise, you'll always miss out, and then... You'll kick yourself. He fishes a five-lira note out of his pocket and holds it out to Gül. She shakes her head. Take the money. I don't need any photos. Take it, her father says and goes to slip her the note. Gül steps back and shakes her head again. The tears which had been sitting behind her eyes and which she gulped down have disappeared. Enough of this nonsense, my girl. Gül stares at the ground. Her father takes a step towards her and says, If you don't take this money now, you'll get such a whack with the back of my hand, you'll go deaf and blind for a week. Now she looks up, looks at him. She thinks she can see in his eyes that he's not going to hit her. She takes the money. He rests his hand on her hair, but Gül shrugs him off and he turns around. Gül would like to just run away now, but she doesn't dare. She watches her father walk back to his workshop. She can't cry, she can't groan. She can't walk away. She just stands there. There's just so much defiance, self pity, anger, fear, love. She can't feel it all at once.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really lovely. I've never heard you reading it in English. It's beautiful sound to, for me. Um, so we're just going to ask each other some questions, starting with
1: you. Uh, me, I don't know how you, how you translated the book. I, I once uh, heard Clara Drexler and Harald Hellmann, who were translating, I think, Irvine Welch from English into German, and they said they just tore the book apart And she translated the first half and he translated the second half and then they put it somehow all together. But uh, as far as I know, that's not the way you two worked.
0: Right. We didn't. How did we divide it up, Aicham? It's hard to explain.
2: Hmm. Um, How did we do it? Well, it was... You did it, Katie. It seemed quite effortless. You just like... You start from the beginning and kind of found sort of areas where there would be natural breaks in the story and we just did alternating sections that were about a thousand to two thousand words long.
0: Neither of us I think had ever done a a co-translation before. No. So we were just kind of inventing the wheel and because the book is has this structure of of sort of anecdotes like you said like the family stories that you've been told from from childhood there there were certain lengths and they stand alone quite well so so it worked very well but it was lovely we were sending it back and forth so I'd do a bit and Aisha would uh, read over that and and make suggestions and corrections and she'd do the next bit sometimes we got a bit out of sync didn't really matter and we could have conversations about things that cropped up repeatedly I don't know, names of food and um, sort of structural things Uh, and we we would put these lovely um, little joyful comments in the margins for each other, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was so nice being able to work together because as everyone says, translation is a very solitary job and you don't really get any feedback and you you don't know if you're doing a good job. You hope you're doing a good job, but it was kind of like half appreciating the book and half like mutual appreciation society where we'd just be like underlining a line and being like nice one yeah. um and I saw I saw Katie uh, like smile during Selim's reading because I translated that bit and I was really proud of the phrase just a tick
0: yes. <laughs> yeah. that was one of those ones that got a little heart in the margin I should think yeah yeah, yeah. no it was, it was great it's really um positive experience for me too just having that immediate fe- well almost immediate feedback um, was quite different than, uh, to usual. Uh, and it, it it worked very well for us this time, yeah. Shall we um, read a little bit?
1: Before before you start reading.
2: Yeah, tell him, say something. <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, no, because uh, it's very nice for me, and uh, I haven't read the whole book, but I will. Uh, it has been translated into Dutch, which I can't read, and it has been translated into Turkish, and uh, it was a joyful experience reading it because it's not like it's not what I have done, but it's absolutely my taste. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just moved by the book, and it's like, uh, well, it doesn't feel like I wrote it, but.
0: Um, but you did.
1: Yes, but yes. Um, when I read the German, text it's like okay I put a lot of work in that so I see the work and when I read the translation I can see just the bare emotion and I'm like wow this moves me
0: oh that's lovely we're like the invisible menders of the literary (laughs) world (laughs) here let's give you a little taste in mine and
2: Aicha's voices okay
0: I think you have to start Aicha right
2: uh I do don't I shall I start now yes okay Recep squeezed himself onto the bench where Gul was sitting and whispered to her, Your dad's got into a row with Tufan. There's going to be a fight in the village square. Your dad's strong, but Tufan has more men. Gul was agitated.
0: She felt hot. She felt like she couldn't sit still any longer, but she didn't move. Her father was going to fight someone. Why have they fallen out? she whispered to Recep. I don't know. Are you coming with me? Yes, Gul said. She'd never seen adults fight before.
2: You could have sung the national anthem for a full year before the school day was finally over. That's how slow time seemed to pass. There was whispering and gossiping, the news spread, and when the teacher declared school over for the day, the pupils streamed out of the classroom faster than ever before and ran breathless towards the village square. Everyone wanted to grab a good spot. Come with me, they'll chase us away from the square, Recep said.
0: They climbed up a ladder onto the roof of one of the houses that had a good view of the village square. Two groups of men were standing below them, a stone's throw away. Gul instantly recognised her father in the smaller group. The men were shouting, hurling insults at each other. The blacksmith didn't have the loudest voice but he towered over the rest of them and stood with his head high, his shoulders slightly back, his chest pushed out. He didn't seem afraid at all.
2: The men picked up stones off the ground and flung them at their rivals. First someone from Tufan's group would throw one, and the others would retreat. Then Timur's men would throw, and Tufan's friends would put their arms up in front of their faces to protect themselves, and take a few steps back. One of Timur's mates would hit on the brow, and the left side of his face and his neck were covered with blood, but he shouted the loudest of all. On the other side, even No-Nose Abdul squawked out a few swears. Nearly all the children were afraid of him. His nose had been shot off by his brother when the two of them were young. They'd been playing with their father's gun, thinking it wasn't loaded. Abdul only very rarely left the village, so as not to be at the mercy of strangers' stares. In the village, at least, the adults had long grown accustomed to his scarred face, the bridge of his nose ending abruptly just beneath his eyebrows.
0: Dishonourable dog, Abdul shouted, and from behind him, Jufan yelled,
2: Crook! Dirty pig! Timur split off from his group and made towards the others. He was lucky. A couple of stones missed him, one clipped his shoulder. When he was standing a good ten strides away from his group, the others stopped throwing stones. "'What's your problem, Tufan, you son of an ox? "'If you're a man, come over here and fight like one. Don't just throw stones like a woman!' "'In case you didn't already know,
0: in this village we throw stones to chase off dogs!' Tufan yelled back. "'And what are you but a pesky little dog? What business do you have in our village?'
2: A good dog doesn't bite people in his own village, Timur said. Now come and fight like a man. Gul would have liked to shout out loud. She would have liked to do something to make them all get along again. But she sat on the roof and held her breath like all the other children who had gathered up there in the meantime, having been chased away from the village square. A few of the children recognised their own fathers among the groups. Recep wished he had a father who could be standing there too, or at least a brother old enough, but he just had four older sisters and a mother. Tufan took a few steps forward, not as energetically as Timur had, then turned around to look at his men. Now there were perhaps fifteen strides between Timur and Tufan. The first upright and proud, the other a little shorter, his shoulders sunken.
0: "'You rip me off,' Tufan said. "'You rob me blind. I'll tell you again. I want
2: my cut.' "'Cut? We agreed on a price for the beans. You got it. We shook on it, and now you want to go back on your word.' "'You conned
0: me. It was far too little.'
2: I gave you a good price, and you agreed to it.
0: You owe me double.
2: Fuck you. Come and fight me.
0: Timur took another two steps towards Tufan, who was clearly willing himself to stay standing. And suddenly a stone hit Timur in the middle of his forehead. Nobody saw who'd thrown it, because they had all been mesmerised by the sight of the two rivals. Timur hesitated only briefly, wiped a hand over his brow, and then ran at Tufan. But Tufan turned and ran to his men, who were now all flinging stones at Timur to keep him away. Once he'd been hit a few times, the blacksmith stopped and walked back, slowly. When he was far enough away, he turned around again. You
2: cowards! Can't even fight like men! If I get hold of any of you, I'll use you to plug the hole you crawled out of! He yelled the air out of his lungs and a single
0: trickle of blood ran between his eyebrows and then down the left side of his nose, disappearing into his thick blonde moustache. We're going, he said. Stéphane had run away, the matter was closed. Gu ran home excitedly and told her mother what she'd seen. Right, So we start again?
2: Uh, tell you've got a question? I do, and it's for Katie. So you've been championing this book for well over a decade? And I'm pretty sure I've heard you describe it as the book you most wanted to translate literally everywhere on the internet I have seen that um so what was it that drove your love of the book and you know kept you going through that decade I think it's it's the affection with which
0: the stories
2: are told
0: the characters are, are clearly telling me really I get the feeling anyway that you really love these characters and they they do feel when I'm, when I'm reading it like almost a part of my family, and I think that's partly to do with this kind of anecdotal style. It it does remind me of, of like stupid anecdotes that my parents and grandparents told, about their childhood. My granddad told about their, how they had a, allegedly had a monkey that lived in the outdoor toilet. I don't know if it's true, um, <laughs> and partly just the the kind of the humour and the sadness, and and it all makes up a whole life. I also think it's an important story to tell. Who are these people who who came to Germany and built up the country and what were they doing before they came here? Um, But actually, more than that, it's just the the genuine love that kind of leaps off the pages towards me. Nice.
2: On that note as well, um, that's the same thing that I really love about it, that, that those kind of family stories are like... I feel like that's a really universal thing. Everybody has those family stories, and there's that kind of mythology in every family, like you're reading those things, and in my family, it was like, Oh, Dursun went to the graveyard and he killed a snake, and the next day he died of a heart attack and I was terrified for like a year after hearing that story, and so the book really helped me process that trauma. <laughs> um just wanted to get that anecdote in because it's so. <laughs> Shall I ask Selim his question? Yes. Um, so, Selim, I read once on Katie's blog, Love German Books, or one word, that um the writer Denis Utl congratulated you on maintaining your integrity and avoiding becoming Minister for Turks or Professional Turkish Representative, which is what I describe myself as, um, <laughs> So in that vein, I wanted to ask two questions. One, if the position of Minister for Turks is still available, can I apply? And two, um, how do you feel about The Blacksmith's Daughter, which you said yourself was a book you said you weren't going to write, being the first book that introduces you to an English language audience? Are they going to get the wrong idea? Are they going to get the right idea? Does it matter?
1: Uh, It doesn't matter. Not at all. Because I don't know what the wrong and what the right idea about me and my writing would be. So that was the easy part. Uh, Yes, you still can apply, but I don't think. um, Well, the Germans decide, the majority decides which person will be the minister of the Turks. It's not, it's a question of power. And there can only be one chosen and that's that's my point of view. It will be one uh who the Germans want to be this representative. They wouldn't choose a person like me
2: but why
1: because uh, <laughs> it has to be your main field of interest to be Turkish in a way, and for me, it's not. but it's nice because this is the first I think this is the first novel I wrote which uh speaks to a broader audience. The books I wrote before that were mainly for younger people, let's say just younger people. And this might work for a broader audience. So I'm quite happy that it is this book.
2: Same. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a case of how you respond to your own identity, like... I think, particularly in Germany, we were discussing this actually at the beginning of translating it of the book, weren't we? We were discussing why Selim chose to sort of explain things, where in English the kind of what we felt was the best approach was to put various words back into the Turkish and leave them right. foreignized, as we'd say. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's about the fact that obviously Germany had a much bigger wave of migration from turkey than the uk did and the uk had like predominantly kurdish and turkish cypriot people um and so germany has a more established idea of what the turks are an established stereotype whereas we don't have that um and so there's less of that to react against for me the professional representative of the turks in the uk mm-hmm. ambassador to the turks um than there is in Germany where I can understand it's kind of like, Please leave me alone. I want to do something other than talk about Erdoğan when I'm not interested in him at all. <laughs> yes, that's my two pennies
0: thank you but i th- I mean I think um it, to some extent it's a privilege to be able to define our own identity and one that we should take for ourselves, you know
1: when we talk about uh my idea of identity is uh, something else. Then. When we say identity, we usually talk about some cultural thing. And to me, it's not what forms your character, what, what is about your good sides and your flaws. It's, it's not a cultural thing. Culture is just the layer on top of your identity. And the other thing is um, you have the most... That's my uh, point of view again. Uh, You have the most prejudices against the biggest minorities. It doesn't matter which place, but if you're the biggest minority, you face all these prejudices. And if you're from a smaller minority, people don't have that biases against your group. So uh, it might be easier to be Turkish in the UK, in a way.
2: (laughs) I'll report back. Yeah.
0: So the book, The Blacksmith's Daughter, is part one of a series which we're calling the Anatolian Blues Trilogy, kind of inspired by the way you've talked about Isilium in the past. And also by the, there's a lot of music in it. And I, I know you tried to find specific songs that feature in the book for this for our translation what how did that go for you
2: well it went badly katie (laughs) i didn't i didn't (laughs) find any songs but i think selim has said that he a lot of the time he was making the songs up but i felt like obviously the language is very familiar like the kind of ideas that are mentioned in turkish songs of a certain period and love songs and things things about the purity of your heart and your reflection and stuff like that. I did try at certain points translating the German into Turkish and then looking that up. That didn't work. <laughs> so instead, when there were certain things like the songs, I decided to translate them into Turkish roughly and then see how I responded to them emotionally yeah. because I felt like the Turkish probably would like just affect me in a different way, which it did. And for more, please buy the book.
0: Selim, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> where did these songs come from, off the top of your head?
1: Well, it's quite a long time ago that I wrote the book. So uh, when when you asked me, um, I was like, uh, well, there will be some original songs. But then when I looked it up, it was like, okay, I made this one up, and I made this one up, and I made these <laughs> lyrics up. But... Uh, In a way, I didn't, because uh, they're just representatives of songs, in a way. It's all about destiny and love gone wrong and uh, the whole world being a foreign place where you can't find any joy and you have to leave anyway. Uh, I was quite surprised to... um, for the project I'm working on right now, I read the Derek Korkut tales, which are the first Turkish text from, uh, I don't know, the 10th century or something like that. And there we have this Derek Korkut figure who uh, sings all these tales. And most of these tales, of heroes and now he's dead and nobody knows his name and all he's achieved is gone. So (laughs) this kind of, uh, let's call it world view dates back to these ages, so there is a long tradition of, uh, let's call it, Anatolian blues.
0: So I just want to say thank you so, so much to Selim and Aicha for our conversation about the book, The Blacksmith's Daughter, and to our producer, Susan Stone, for recording and editing and producing. Plus, a big thank you to Andy Sire for our theme tune. Look out for more podcasts in future on our website, vq-books.eu, and wherever you get your podcasts. Do check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook if you're so inclined. VQ Books is our handle because you can't do an ampersand on social media. Thank you very much and thanks for tuning in.